Welcome to the City Point Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at citypoint.tv or our Facebook page, City Point Church. So we're going to start at 1 Kings 19, and I'm going to read the entire chapter as we get going today. I'm going to let you do this through the scriptures, because that's tiny. (laughs) And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then Elijah looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel I have forsaken They have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we ask, oh God, that you would come and write your word on our hearts, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us, that you would meet with us, oh God. Lord, we surrender to you. Speak through me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the story of Elijah. And I love that the Bible has lots of stories. There's um, all kinds of stories in it. First Kings is a history book. So like throughout the Bible, there's poetry, there's history, there's the life of Jesus, there's letters that they wrote back and forth. And so First Kings falls in the Old Testament, and it's one of the books of history. And it talks about, what do you guess? If the title's First Kings, what does Kings talk about? Kings! It talks about the kings of Israel. And if there's a First Kings, there's probably a... Second king. So we're like smack dab in the middle of the kings. So um, at this point, it's, uh, the book of Kings starts at about around 1,000 B.C. So that's 1,000 years before Jesus came. And right at 18, we're at about 800 years B.C. So we've already um, gone through like Genesis is the creation. That's when the world began. That's, and then we had the flood. You had Israel and Moses. They were come out. Then God raised up what was called judges. And the judges were like their rulers. So, but the people didn't like having judges because it made them different. They wanted to be just like all the countries that surrounded them. So they asked God for kings. And God gave them a king. They gave him Saul. And then after Saul, there was David. And after David, there was Solomon. And there was one king for the whole, whole nation of Israel. But the people couldn't get along. The sons of the kings couldn't get along. So you see after Solomon, the kingdom divided into two areas. In the north was called Israel, and in the south was called Judah. And um, from that point on, they had two kings. They had a king in the north and a king in the south. And so that's where we find ourselves. They've gone through all this. There's a king in the north, and his name is Ahab, and he's an evil king. The Bible says that he was the most evil king up to that time, and he caused people to walk away from God more than any other king at that time. So there was, there was a temple. There were priests who were supposed to be living right for God, but we know they weren't always doing their job. The kings were walking away from God. They were abdicating their authority to lead the nation back to God, and they were turning them to other gods. So that's the setup of where we're at. Ahab's favorite god and his wife Jezebel's favorite god was this god called, called Baal. And so many people worship this god called Baal. It was a, a false god. You know, today we have false gods too. But then that's what it was called. And while we have prophets, which are people who speak for God, Baal had prophets too. And leading up to this um, encounter, Elijah had just killed 450 prophets of Baal. So with that being said, <laughs> oh, she's got it. She's good. So with that being said, 
since Jezebel loved Baal, pretty much hated Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Elijah was a prophet of the God of Israel, she wasn't too happy with Elisha. So, but Elisha was a man of power. He comes on the scene in 1 Kings 17, and you start learning about Elisha. You learn about Elisha because he makes a declaration. So prophets speak for God, especially in the Old Testament. So like in the New Testament, we talked about Pentecost last Sunday, how the Holy Spirit comes upon people and then flows out of them and lives within us. Like that's the amazing thing about Christ ascending and he sent the Spirit and now we can have the Spirit within us. Back in the Old Testament, before Jesus, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for specific purposes. So the Holy Spirit had come upon um, Elijah as a prophet, and he would speak for God. And um, so he was a prophet. That's what it means to be a prophet. And his first act that you read about in 1 Kings 17 is he declared the word of the Lord. And he declared, there will be no rain over this land except by my word. Can you imagine that? Like, that takes guts. That takes guts to just be, you're coming on the scene and you say, it's not going to rain except by my word. And to know that God had called you to say that and to lead you to do that, that that's power. <laughs> that takes, you have to really know you've heard and you declare it. So he also did miracles. So this sent the country into a drought. There was no rain. There was no rain for over three years. There was no water. There was no crops. There was no food for the animals. There was no food for the people. So then you see him going and he, he was a man of miracles, signs, and wonders. He went and, uh, God fed him with ravens by a brook. And then when the brook dried up, God sent him to a widow woman, the most unlikely person. And he saw this widow gathering sticks to make her last meal. And he said, if you feed me, God will feed you. And so she took her last little bit of flour, made a cake, gave him food. And for that entire drought, as long as he was there, until the rain came, she had flour, she had oil, she was able to feed her family. Later on, her son had something, we don't know what happened, but he died. And Elijah went and prayed and stretched himself out over the boy, and the kid was raised to life. Like, this man was a man of power, a man of faith. The people of Israel respected him and honored him as a prophet of God, that he was God's mouthpiece to them at that time. He was feared. I mean, if you could say no rain, like there's a little bit of awe right there. He was also hated. <laughs> could you imagine being the one that said, no rain, no rain for you, no crops, no livelihood. This was a farming society. And now all of a sudden, all the farmers had no food. They couldn't feed their kids. They're starving, literally starving. And... Uh, the king and the queen aren't too happy either. King Ahab isn't really that happy about this, obviously, because he's got all these people complaining, and he's trying to stir all these things up. So they have a showdown on Mount Carmel, and uh, he's like, let's see which God is God, because Ahab is saying it's his God, his God is Baal, and God's going to show up. And uh, Elijah's like, nope, not going to happen. So they go to this Mount Carmel, and this is in chapter 18. And the whole question is, which God can bring the fire? Which God can bring the fire? And Baal's prophets chant around, 
They get all worked up. They're all stirred up. No fire, no fire, no fire, no fire. Elijah humbly prays to the God of heaven and earth, and God sends down fire that consumes the altar. After he does that, Elijah goes and kills all those prophets that are up on top of that hill, all 450 dead in a day. <laughs> and then he goes to prayer. And he humbles himself before God and asks God to send the rain. Remember what he said? At my word, there'll be rain. Seven times he prayed. Seven times he sent a servant to see if it was raining. The seventh time the servant came back and there was a cloud the size of a man's hand. And he began declaring, it's going to rain. Better get going. It's going to rain. And the rains poured. He was a man of great power. So much so that as we started this chapter, Jezebel wanted him dead. <laughs> Let the gods do more to me if I don't see you dead just like you killed all my prophets. That's pretty serious business. But Elijah, he's a great man of faith, right? He's a great man of faith and power. But you know what the Bible tells us in James 5, 17 and 18? It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He was a man just like us, with a nature like us. <laughs> he was just like us. The first words you hear about Elisha is that he is a tishbite. Does anyone know what a tishbite is? Neither do a lot of the commentators. <laughs> they think it could be that he was from Tishbe. So it would be like saying, you're a brickie from Hobart, or you're a Hoosier from Indiana. He was from nowhere. God had sent him from nowhere to come and be this prophet. But he was real. He was hungry. He could be hungry. He could be thirsty. We see that he had to have ravens feed him. He had to have a widow feed him. And he could get tired. This great man of faith could get tired just like the rest of us. He could get tired just like the rest of us. The man of faith became a man of fear. <laughs> How often do we turn from great faith to great fear? It's like so easy to flip that switch, isn't it? You know, we think of these prophets as, oh, he's a prophet of God. Or we think of Pastor Mike, oh, he's this amazing pastor. And he is. But he's a man. Elijah was a man. The man who said no rain, the man who called down fire from heaven and called down rain was still a man. And he still faced the fears. He began running. <laughs> he ran. He ran really far. So the first day, he ran to this town called Beersheba, and he hid out there. And you know what? Not only did he run, he isolated himself. He left his servant in Beersheba and is like, don't come with me anymore. I just need to be alone. I just need to get away from all this. I just need to get away. I'm going to run. I am going to run. He ran into the wilderness. He ran into the wilderness. He ran so far. It says he went another day's journey. And then you know what he did? He cried out to a God. I don't know if you've ever been there, but he's like, enough. Kill me now. I'm just done. 
Have you ever been there? Have you ever just felt like, enough, I can't take another day, I can't do another thing, I have these people chasing me, I've tried to do everything you wanted me to do, and look where it's led me. Do you ever feel that way? Where all you want to say is just, enough, enough, I'm so sick of it, enough. That's where Elijah was. That's where we find Elijah. He just wanted to die. (laughs) I found a great quote from Spurgeon. And uh, Charles Spurgeon was a theologian like over 100 years ago. And it says this, Elijah failed in the very point at which he was strongest. And that is where most men fail. In scripture, it is the wisest man who proves himself to be the greatest fool. Just as the meekest man, Moses, spoke hasty and bitter words. Abraham failed in his faith, and Job in his patience. So Elijah, who was the most courageous of all men, fled from an angry woman. Your greatest strength has a total opposite side. And if we don't stay in God, we flip to the other side. You know, like fear and faith are two sides of one coin. (laughs) If we don't stay in faith, we so easily fall into fear. But God, in his great mercy, came running after Elijah. And right there, in the middle of that desert, God sent an angel of the Lord to minister to him. He brought him food. He brought him rest. And then he did it all over again. Twice he sent an angel to minister to him, to bring him food, to bring him rest. Trying to get him to come to his senses and to wake up, saying, this journey's been so great. This journey's been so great. Sometimes the most spiritual work any of us can do is rest and replenish. And I'm speaking to the choir on that one. Sometimes that's what we have to do is take the time to rest. Our bodies do need rest. Or we get to those places where we say enough. Enough is enough. And we check out of everything. And Elijah was at the place of checkout. He had checked out. I think of our care ministry in this time. I think of how that's what our care ministry does. They are those messengers. They are those angels that go to people when they're in those times where they need to replenish or they need rest or they need healing, and they just love them. They take them food. <laughs> you know, they're, they're those angels bringing them the cake and saying, we love you. And what a huge ministry that is to make a meal or to go visit in the hospital or to send a card because you just don't know. At times, that's the most important thing they could need is just to know that someone is with them. And that word angel there means messenger. It means a spiritual messenger. And you guys can all be those spiritual messengers for everyone you come in contact with. Unfortunately, Elijah didn't stop with running there. He decided to keep going. He was a man on the run. He wasn't stopping for anyone, even the angel that God had sent him, even the messenger. He decided to run, and he ran far. He ran far. He'd already run from the northern part of Israel through Judah, and now he's running out into the desert. So for 40 days, he ran. 40 days, 40 nights, he ran. They didn't have roads like we had. They didn't have cars. So he was probably walking or hoofing it. Maybe he caught a camel carriage. I don't know. But he was walking. He was journeying. Estimates are like if you were to go straight from where he was at Mount Carmel to where he went at Horeb, it would be 
it would be about 200 miles. However, with the way the roads were and the mountains in between, he ran for 500 miles, is the estimate. Can you imagine that? 500 miles in 40 days? That's a lot of walking. We don't hear that he ate. He was in a desert. We don't hear that he drank. He was running. He was a runner. I thought of like Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest, run. Run, Elijah, run. Run, Elijah, run. So he's running, and he is running as far away from his faith moment and his encounter with God as he can. But God is causing him to run straight into a place of encounter. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Elijah knew where he was going, but God was ordering his steps. We're told that, you know, a man may make his way, but God orders our steps. And it's so true in this case. He was trying to run from God, but God was causing him to run right to the very place that was a place of encounter. Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. And if you remember, it was a place that Moses met with God. It was the place where the, of the burning bush where Moses received his commissioning from God to, to bring out the Israelites from bondage. It was the place where the Ten Commandments came, you know, and they received that. It was also the place where Moses went back up on the mountain and asked God, show me your glory. And the goodness of God passed by him. This was a place of encounter, and God had led him there all the way to a cave. <laughs> he led him to a cave. This man was getting ready for a meeting because he was going to get a mandate. God had a purpose in this meeting. God was leading him to this meeting. And God's words to him when he got to the cave, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think it was, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I don't think it was mean. I don't think God was harsh. I think God was gentle and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God loved Elijah. God wanted Elijah to wake up. He wanted him to know the plans that he had for him. He wanted him to get back on course. <laughs> what are you doing here, Elijah? But all Elijah could do was complain. It was all about Elijah. Elijah was done, remember? It's enough. I'm done. Kill me now. Let me go. The eyes have it. I am good. I am alone. I have done all these things for you, and look what your people have done. I am here. They are not. I'm done. The eyes had it. The eyes had it. And uh, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. Your children, they've forsaken you, and they've torn down your altars, and they've done all these stupid things and killed your prophets. But I am left. You know, sometimes we get so focused on what we've done. I'm the good one. Why should I have to face this? Look what I've done. I've done all these things for you, God. I've prayed every morning at 6 a.m. I've been there at 9 a.m. I've come and served in children's church. I've, I've uh, made the communion trays. I've printed bulletins. I've worked with the youth. I've done all these things. I've gone on that outreach. There seems to be a common theme in all that. And the common theme is I. God never intended for this Christian walk to be about I. When we focus on what I have done, we lose sight of what he has done and what he will do. Amen. We need to shift our eyes. God wants a meeting with us. Elijah didn't need more theology. 
He knew it. He knew the God. He knew this God could send on fire. He knew that what God said he would do, he would do. He lived it. This was his life. He didn't need a theology lesson. He needed an encounter. He needed to meet with the God of the universe. So you see, then there was the wind, but God wasn't in the wind. And then there was an earthquake and everything was shaken. God wasn't in the earthquake. And there was fire. I don't think Elijah was that impressed with fire. He'd just seen that. He didn't need the miraculous. He needed a meeting. He needed a meeting. So he was in his cave. God had asked him to come out of the cave. But until he heard the gentle, still, small voice, he didn't come out of the cave. I want to read a poem to you. It was a song about this experience. And it says, when the wind comes, it blows away the chaff. And when the earthquake shakes, it frees my spirit. And then the fire burns all that isn't you. And I stand humbly before you. For in the gentle stillness, you let me hear your voice. In quiet submission, you reveal your plan. It's not in the winds or the earthquakes or the fires of my soul, but it's in the gentle stillness we meet. Oh, it's in the gentle stillness we meet. <laughs> the gentle stillness is what caught Elijah's attention. He'd had enough turmoil. Some of us have had a lot of turmoil in our life. We've seen a lot of shaking. We've seen a lot of fires. We've seen a lot of things blowing all around or blowing up. But in that gentle stillness, he heard God's voice. And so, what did he do? He took his mantle and he covered his face and he walked to the edge. He walked to the edge of the cave. And there, in humility, God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? God was calling him out of his cave. He was in a cave of depression. He was in a cave of I. And God was calling him out of his cave to come out. Unfortunately, Elijah still stood there, covered all up, and gave the same answer. I've done all these things. Look what's happened. I'm all alone. I'm still all alone. Now I'm in a cave. What do I do? But the good thing is, God didn't stop there. God had come to meet him. The man, Jesus Christ, had come to meet him, to give him a mission and to give him a mandate. He had come to meet with the maker of heaven and earth. And even though Elijah still stood there in all of his isms, all of his self, God still came to call him out of that cave. It wasn't in the wind, it wasn't in the earthquake, it wasn't in the fire, but God. <laughs> I love that, but God. God doesn't leave us in our caves. He doesn't leave us there at all. He had come to give him a mandate. So God came and met him. And I'm going to read again what God said to him. God didn't say, Elijah, straighten up. Get rid of that. Your focus is on you. He didn't say that. This is what God said to him. He said, go return 
on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria, and anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you anoint as prophet in your place. It'll be whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That was the mandate. That was the mandate. The mandate wasn't just about Elijah. The mandate was what God's plans were. When all we focus on is our plan and our mission and our mandate, we lose sight of God. We're called to look a little higher. We're called to look up. You know, when he covered his face and hid, he was looking down. But when God spoke, he could look up. I love that now, as believers, Jesus has made a way that that veil has been torn. And we can gaze on Jesus. We can see him as he truly is. We can behold him in all his glory. And we will behold him. It's so powerful. God's given us missions. God's given us a mission. Jesus said that our mission is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, mind and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. His last words in Matthew were to go. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And then in Acts, before he ascended, he said, wait for the promise and you will be my witnesses. So we have a commission to love God, to love people, to make disciples, and to go to all nations. We've got that mission, all of us, all believers, everyone who said, Jesus is my Lord, that's your commission, that's your mission. But we have different mandates. We have different mandates. And sometimes those mandates are individual, and sometimes they're corporate. And uh, in this house, we have mandates. In this house, we have a mandate to be a presence-driven church. You know, if you remember, I think it was July 23rd of last year, God released and reaffirmed our mandate to be a presence-driven church. We weren't to do church our way anymore. We were to be led by the Spirit and follow Him wherever He goes. And He led us and gave us the mandate that we're called to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all peoples, that morning, noon, and night we're to be praying. Morning, noon, and night, everything is to be covered in prayer because it's about his presence. It's about seeking him and not doing it our way. So we have a mandate. We have a mandate. Everyone who calls this home, you have a mandate. And we're so glad you're here and that you're part of this mandate with us. And we each have a piece in that mandate. Elijah was given a mandate that day. And it wasn't about him. A lot of times we like to hear God speak. I love the words that go something like this. Oh, Julie, <laughs> I have called you. I love you with an everlasting love. We all love that, don't we? And we need that. We need that. But he wants to move us beyond that to the, this is what I want to do. Step out and do it. So it we're taught by Paul that there was a time where you got milk and now he's calling you up to eat some meat. And so that's what this is about. He loves to speak to us and affirm us and tell us who we are straight from his word. 
but he's also calling us to go beyond ourselves because it's not about us. This is not about us. It's kingdom focused. Number one, it's kingdom focused. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's not about us. Elijah ran in fear and depression because it was all about him. His eyes were just on him and he ran. He ran and he ran and he ran as far away from God as he could. But when God spoke to him, it was all about God and it redirected the path of his life. It is God's agenda, not us. We're to move away from our eyes. It is about him and him alone. <laughs> it's not about us. His message was hopeful. I think sometimes, you know, what did Elijah ask for? He asked to die. He wanted to be done. I'm done, 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 done. I don't know if you've ever felt done. <laughs> Anyone feel done? Anyone felt done? God's saying, you're not done. That's what he said, Elijah, if I'm telling you things that you're going to do, you're not done. Each one of you, as long as you have breath in your body, you're not done. You're not done. You know, we've, we are given this one shot here on earth to do what God has for us to do. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. We're not done. We're not done. There is hope. We are not done. God's not done with us yet, and we are not alone. Jeremiah 29.11 was written to a people. It was written to a people. We always claim it as our own, that God knows the plans he has for me. And he does, but he knows the plans he has for all of us. It was written to the Israel people when they were in captivity. And it was a promise that went beyond them. When they were given that promise, it was 70 years before it was fulfilled. So most of the people who received that promise, it was about their legacy. It was about their lineage. It was about their children. My kids aren't going to stay in bondage anymore. My kids are going to walk into freedom. It was beyond them. It was beyond them. It gave them a hope. We're not staying here. We're not staying here. We may be planting trees and planting gardens right now. We may be marrying and having families. But one day, God's calling us out. It was hopeful. It was hopeful. I think one of the cool things, it says that he was to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola. Say that one fast three times. But in the reading, I found out what Abel Mahola means. And it means it was a valley of dancing. So here is depressed Elijah being sent back into the wilderness of Damascus to go to a place called the Valley of Dancing. Isn't that cool? He turns your morning into dancing. Here he was hiding in a cave, trying to protect his life, thinking he wanted to die, but just not at Jezebel's hand. And God's saying, there's more for you. I'm sending you to the Valley of Dancing. Get your dancing shoes. Get going. I bet you Amy and the band were there. <laughs> Don't you think they had some pretty awesome worship in the Valley of Dancing? I think they knew who their God was. And so when Elijah showed up in that Valley of Dancing, Abel Mahola, and he took off his mantle and he threw it on Elisha. Wouldn't that be like a cool picture? Like, if I was that good, like... 
when he threw it and it landed on him. And that was the anointing of God. His mantle represented his anointing. It was his call. You will now be a prophet. Poosh. That was hope. That was hope. That was promise. Elijah knew he was not going to be alone again. When Elisha went and he took his oxen and he took his plow and he burned it, that was that no going back that Jeanette was talking about. There was no returning. There was nothing he could come back to. His livelihood had been burned up. Either God was going to show up in this prophet thing. He had no plan B. He had nothing to go back to. He was going to follow the man of God wherever God led him. So he burned, he chopped up the wood that was his uh, plow, started a fire, took his oxen, fed the city. I bet they were happy. <laughs> I bet they were happy, free dinner. And uh, followed Elijah all the rest of the days of his life. And we learn later on in 2 Kings that Elisha went on to do like double the miracles of what Elijah did. It was so powerful. Like he was there when Elijah was taken into glory. He was there. He would not leave Elijah's side. Other prophets came and left. Other people would say, hey, I want to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I'll do whatever you want. And they were there a few days and they would leave. But Elisha would not leave Elijah's side. No longer could he leave his servant in another city and go off to just wish he was dead. He had a friend and he had a successor. He was told that this person would be the prophet in his place. He knew what was going to happen and he let it happen. It was hopeful. <laughs> and not only that, not only did he have Elisha, there were 7,000 other others who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. You know, sometimes we can think we're alone. We get upset, we get depressed, we hide in our caves and think it's all about me because we think we're the only one doing things. But yet God wants us to know you're not alone. You're not alone. That's why we have the body. That's why we need the body. That's why you need to be a part of a church and, and be committed and be submitted and be accountable because we need one another. When I'm weak, you might be strong. When I'm strong, I might be there for you. There's a song that says you, uh, about faith. When you don't have the faith to stand, you can borrow mine. Because <laughs> you know what? I'm going to need yours one day. I'm going to need you to come and pray me through something. But right now, maybe I have the faith that I can pray you through something. We need one another. We need to stand together. We are not called to do this Christian life alone. We are called to be together. We're called to be in relationship. I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken the growth track, come on out. Get plugged in. Hear what we're about. But more importantly, it's the first step to getting plugged in. It's the first step to serving in this church. And we need one another. This isn't about the pastors. It's not about the elders or our ministry leaders. It's about the body. We all do things together. We are all called to be Christ's hands and feet. We are all called. We have amazing people who are serving our children right now as I'm speaking. And they're ministering to our kids and they're loving them. We need them. They need us. We need to be praying for them. We need to be standing with them. We need to be serving with them. We have others who are cooking a meal right now for some people. 
They're preparing lunch. They're being those angels, those messengers, because it's about the body. It's not about any one person. We just need to know what our position is, and it'll bring us hope. It'll give us that future and a hope, because we're not alone. We're part of something greater. And it's corporate. You've been hearing me talk about that. It's corporate. It's corporate. What God wanted to do was the saving of a nation. He wanted to turn a nation back to him. Do you know God still wants to do that today? He has called us to this city. It's not by accident that our name is City Point. <laughs> it's not by accident that we changed the name of our city to City Point. We are to be a pivot point in this city. We are called to be a pivot point as we seek God in prayer. Why do you think he's called us to prayer? It's not about us. It's not just so that we would be healed and happy. It's so that he would be glorified. So that the city would be saved. That our nation would be saved. That our region would be saved. It's about him. It's not about us. I'll take good prayer any day. I really will. Y'all are welcome to pray for me every day. You're welcome to pray for Pastor Mike every day. We would really appreciate that. Pray for this church. But it's about the kingdom. Pray that we would have that kingdom mindset, that we'd be about the kingdom. Pray that as a church we would step into the place that he has for us as a city. We are not here by accident. He has a plan. He has such a plan. When I was, um, I was 29 and I was depressed, I was in a cave called depression for four years. And no one around me knew it. <laughs> I had an elder at my church. I went to him. He was our elder. And I said, you know, pray for me. I was just diagnosed with clinical depression. And uh, the elder looked at me and he said, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I was just diagnosed. I went to the doctor. They did all these things, blah, blah, blah. They ruled out all this. He's like, no, no, I, I just don't understand. Like, you're the happiest person I know. <laughs> I didn't know what to say, so I just said to him, with all respect, <laughs> I said, well, then you need to know some more people. <laughs> I'm not happy. I'm depressed. I have this rage boiling inside of me that I can't control, and I don't know what to do with it. And that set us on a journey. We were living in Illinois. My husband... Um, at the time was, was working, he was working like 80 hours a week in a retail company. I was working 25 hours a week. I had twin infants who were one year old. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I can just hear that, oh, it was a lot. <laughs> Some of you are going, oh, I get the depression right now. <laughs> I get it right now. It was a lot, but it wouldn't go away. I tried resting, you know, we tried changing things. and. We went to therapy. I went to counseling. Um, for a season, I took an antidepressant. And um, I, I prayed. I just kept thinking, if I pray enough, if I pray enough, or if, I'm, uh, if I do enough, you know, like if I serve enough. So, like, I was still serving in my church. I was still a worship leader. I was still a prayer leader. I was doing everything I knew to do. But nothing was enough. I was saying enough. But nothing was enough. God opened a door. I had no plans of this door ever being opened in my life. I did not want this door. I was not seeking this door. I was very content in my suburban life in Illinois. And, uh, but we'd been looking for different jobs. The therapist had said, you know, it sounds like you guys just work too much and you need to change your life. So we looked for other jobs. And 
We looked everywhere. We looked Texas, we looked Colorado, we looked in California, we looked in Illinois, but we were not coming back to Northwest Indiana. This was not the place I was coming. I grew up here, I was not returning here. And uh, I can remember driving down Mulberry Avenue um, about two weeks before this, and just seeing the green haze in the sky that day, we'd come home to visit my parents and just saying, who would ever wanna live here? Who would ever wanna live in Portage, Indiana? It's just green. And, um, and that was the sky, not the grass. And uh, I remember we went home. And after that, we got a phone call from a friend saying, hey, I know you guys are looking for jobs. Have you ever thought of looking in Northwest Indiana? And my initial reaction was, no. Why would anyone want to live in Northwest Indiana? I got out. And, uh, but it, I said, well, send us the information. Someone else called and said, hey, I just heard so-and-so's buddy has a job opening and wants a resume. So we sent in resumes. Within two weeks, my husband was here working in Northwest Indiana, the place we weren't coming to, <laughs> the place we had no plans of coming to. We were back here. Within, um, I don't know, maybe three weeks of having our house on the market, while we still were in the middle of a huge remodel, we had no siding on our house. It looked a fright. We sold our house for the asking price. Who does that? It was crazy. With multiple offers. Within a month, we moved back here on uh, March 27th, 1998. So it's been 20 years now. 1998, we moved back here. And I found myself in Northwest Indiana going, what in the world? And I thought, oh, my life's going to be better. We organized everything. It's all lovely. Depression's going to be gone. Nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Everything was better. My life was better. I wasn't working. He got a job where I didn't have to work. It was phenomenal. I could just be a stay-at-home mom. I loved it. But every few months, I'd have this cycle of depression that would come up. I'd try talking to people at my new church. They didn't know what to do with me. A lot of people don't know what to do with me. <laughs> so I tried praying more. I tried fasting. I tried seeking God. Went to counseling. I was off antidepressants then because that didn't really work for me anyways. And I just sought God. Uh, after about three and a half years, I was meeting with a girlfriend and I knew she was a spirit-filled believer. I didn't know what that meant in the terms that we talk about here. But God's spirit was speaking to me. I knew Jesus, and I knew his voice. And he kept saying, ask her about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ask her about it. And so in fear and trepidation, <laughs> to be honest, because that was not something my church believed in, I asked her. And she talked about it being the release of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I'm like... I need that. I need more of the Holy Spirit. I need his power in my life because I can't do this my own way. But my theology didn't work with what I'd just been told. But I got to the point where I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care that my theology that I'd been taught for 29 years didn't line up with what the word of God was saying to me. And I saw it in Acts. And so one Wednesday night in October... Uh, October 6th, 1999, I walked an aisle and I asked my friend to pray for me. And I said, I am tired of living in fear. I need the Holy Spirit. And I prayed. 
And it began this journey. I met a person whose name was Holy Spirit. And he came in and released himself throughout my life and radically changed me. I had known Jesus. I had known glimpses of the Holy Spirit. But all of a sudden, I was filled with power to live. That's what Acts 1.8 says. You will receive power to be witnesses. And you'll go to the ends of the earth. And as I... I remember as I stood there, it was like a million butterflies going off in me. It was like something I'd never felt. And to be honest, I didn't speak in tongues at that moment. I spoke in tongues a few days later. But God began changing my life as he released his Holy Spirit in me. I had a passion and a hunger for his word. I couldn't wait to read the word of God. I woke up at four the next morning to read the word of God. I thought I was healed. I thought I was done. But little by little, I'd have snippets of the depression trying to come back and trying to attach. But on February 6th, 2000, I was in a conference. And the speaker was speaking. And he was saying, if there's something that's holding you back, I want you to come up right now and we want to pray. Whatever that sin is in your life, we want you to come up. And it was a women's conference. So they were saying, you know, like, if you'd... Um, if you slept around, we want you to come up. If you've done drugs, we want you to come up. If, if, if you have a problem with alcohol, we want you to come up. If you have any of these major issues, you know, you killed someone, I don't know, whatever. It was all these major things. I want you to come up. And all of a sudden, I found my body coming up out of the chair and running to the front. And I'm standing there going, I don't get this, God. I grew up in the church. I didn't do any of those things. I don't know what this is. The first person came and prayed for me, and, and they're like, oh, God, help her to forgive herself, give her the grace to forgive herself. And all the time I'm standing there going, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> Could you tell me? But a prophet came up to me and he laid his hands on me and all he said is, you are beautiful, you are pure, and you are worthy. And with that statement, I crumpled. He didn't say anything else, but I met a man. <laughs> I met a man that day on that floor who walked me through forgiveness. There had been things in my past that held me back. There were things that held me in shame and bondage for 25 years, and I released them. I released people who'd hurt me. I released some uh, shame that I'd carried. I released the anger that had been pent up in me because of what had happened against me. I released it. I released it to the one who could take it, and that was the Lord. I released that anger. I released forgiveness. I prayed for the one who had hurt me. I prayed for him. And you know what happened? Suddenly I found... I was a crumpled mess on the floor, but I was free. God didn't stop there. He began speaking to me, and he birthed a passion and a vision in my heart for something greater than myself. For four years, I'd been in a cave of depression where all I could think about was, was I going to kill someone that day? Because literally, the rage would make me feel like I could tear car doors off or that I could hurt someone. And that day, that was all gone. And he put something inside of me that was so much greater. I met with a lady two or three days later, and we began praying. And God birthed a vision to pray for our pastors and to pray for this city, that this city would be saved. And the key pin to all of it was our pastors coming together. It was about our pastors coming together. 
And so some others joined with me. John and Pam were part of this group and others. And for 10 years, we prayed for the city. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And you know what? I no longer was depressed. When I got free and had a meeting with the man Christ Jesus, walked in forgiveness, extended forgiveness, I was then free to do the mandate and the mission God had called for me. And I stepped into it and carried it. God has called us as a church to be those same ones crying out for our city day and night and night and day, that the incense would arise from this place, from this place. That's what it means to be a house of prayer, that wherever you go, whatever you do, you're carrying his presence with you into that place. You're interceding. It doesn't matter if you're here, if you're at Kimbrough, if you're at Crown Point, if you're in Valparaiso, if you're in Hobart, if you're at the steel mills, if you're at the schools doesn't matter where you are. You are carrying the presence of God everywhere you go because you've met with a man who's given you a mission and a mandate. I think there's many of you, and I know it could be me, that have been in a cave. Maybe your cave isn't called depression. Maybe your cave is called pornography. Or maybe your cave is called rejection. Or maybe your cave is called unforgiveness. Or your cave is called hurt or offense. And you've ran 500 miles away from where God wants you to be. You've ran in the opposite direction of God. But God is running after you today. And he's speaking to you. Those same words he spoke to Elijah. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Cece? What are you doing here, Paul? What are you doing here, Connie? What are you doing here, Julie? What are you doing here, Kyle? And if you'll just bow before him, I think he wants to meet with you. And I think he wants to renew that mission that he has for you. And he wants to give you a mandate. Part of that mandate will be in this house. If you're called here, you're part of this. <laughs> this is part of who you are. This is who we are. If you're a member here, God bless you. You're part of the family. This is our call. We are running to be that pivot in, that, in this city. We are called to bring pastors together. We are called to pray. We are called to pray and we are called to be led by the presence of God. That's part of your mandate. But God has a specific thing he wants each of you to do. And so I've asked the worship team to play again that song, Oh, the Reckless Love of God. If you've ran away from God, you might still be sitting here, but you're a thousand miles away in your heart or a million miles away. You're as far as you can get from God. But today, he's calling you to run and have a meeting with him. Thank you for listening to the City Point Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at citypoint.tv or our Facebook page, City Point Church.